You're listening to The Promise Church's Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy this teaching by Pastor Jonathan. For more information about who we are, please visit us at thepromisechurch.com. Why don't you do this with me before we jump into the Word? Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. You were just sitting, watching wonderful people on the screen, hearing Pastor Nick. I just want our attention fully on Jesus before we jump into the Word today. Lord Jesus, we set our attention on you, Lord. God, we, we declare that there is no one like you. Nothing and no one compares to you, Lord. You are so worthy of all worship and praise. God, I ask that you would move powerfully in this time of your word. Holy Spirit, do what you do best, which is reveal Jesus to us. Lord, let us hear your voice, Lord. Come and challenge us, convict us, make us more like Jesus. God, we desire simply to be a place where you want to be, a place where you want to stay, a place of your presence, Lord. We thank you, God, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 You can be seated. Well, I'm excited to share the word with you today. It's a, it's a fun but unique moment for myself and my family. My wife, who's our children's pastor uh, and one of our senior leaders, she is also preaching today in Woodland. I think we've only preached together one time in our entire marriage life. We celebrated 16 years of marriage this last Friday. Praise the Lord. She still loves me. And thank you. And we are preaching at the same time, but not in the same place. It's a very, very fun, but weird and thing at the same time. I kind of wish I was there, but I love all of you. I'm not, I'm not sad to be with you, uh, but I will watch her online later. Praise God. Uh, today, I want to share with you uh, something that really lines up with where we've been going as a campus and as a church, as a whole at the Promise Church for the last couple of years. Uh, God has been speaking to us very clearly of what he has in mind for us and our mission and our, our mandate and our assignment from him. And we, we say this a lot. This is kind of our vision statement as a church. But we exist, the Promise Church exists to see lives transformed, cities saved, and nations won by being people of his presence. We truly believe that. We truly believe that God has sent us here to Longview to see lives transformed, to see the cities of Kelso and Longview and this region encounter Jesus through the gospel, through his presence, and to see people's lives forever changed. We really believe that we aren't here to play church. We aren't here just for good services and a good time. We are here on mission to advance the kingdom of God, to see people's lives forever changed. And it takes just simply his people, one person at a time, to say yes to that, to desire to love Jesus, live for him, and to walk in his presence every day of their lives. And so we've, we've talked uh, for, at length of what that looks like. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke on what it looks like to be a people of his presence. We've talked about some of our core values, which I'm going to just touch on for a moment again today over these last few weeks. But today I want to speak directly about the idea of being a place where God doesn't visit, but he stays. In a sense, being a divine dwelling place where God stays. God is looking for a people where he is honored and cared for and loved in such a way 
where he doesn't just have to visit and then not be able to return or not come back ever again because the people there were uh, offended, they were overwhelmed, they were upset because God upset the apple cart of their church and caused disturbance, so to speak, in the spirit, and they were not prepared, they were upset, they, they wanted the things to go back to a very comfortable format and structure, and so then God was like, man, that really stinks, I'm not able to move freely there. And we want to be a place where God is able to be himself and free to be himself. Amen? Amen. 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 So what is God looking for in a people where he can dwell? I want to just give you guys a couple scriptures to kind of lay a foundation for where we're going today. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 19. I, I shared this a few weeks ago, but this again shows God's heart and intention for his church. Ephesians 2, 19 says, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Say, that's me. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We see here that God intended for his church to always be, to be built on Jesus as the chief cornerstone, to be built by Jesus, to be about Jesus and for Jesus. And in that place of the church being built on him, he desires to dwell with his people, that all of us come together, are built and joined together on Christ, built by him where he dwells amongst us. God has always desired to dwell with his people. We see this in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. God has always desired to dwell with his people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes to the church of Corinth to remind them of something that in a sense they have heard before that they should know. And he tells them in 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know or don't you remember that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? See, He's taught to them before uh, about that your body is not your own. You were bought with a price, that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. When we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are no longer our own. God's Spirit literally actually comes and dwells on the inside of us. Yeah. Then when we gather together corporately as a group, as a church, that collectiveness, that gathering together actually enhances and causes the manifestation of the presence of God to grow and become even more. And so Jesus even said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am even in the midst of them. Again, you can't separate the presence of God from the person of God. When we say God is here, Jesus is in the room, we mean the person of God is here through the Holy Spirit, that his presence is really with us and among us. And our desire is for his presence to be so real and tangible that every person that would come here would experience him. Every person that would come here would encounter him, would leave and know that there is no way to deny that God is alive, that he is real, that he loves them, and that he's died for them. You see, when a house is built on Jesus, when a church is built on Jesus, there is to be life there. Because Jesus said, I have come to give life and life abundantly. So 
a, a house of God, the church, should be a life-giving place where the presence of God breathes life into souls, where the presence of God transforms people and they go from death to life. You see, Christianity was never meant to be a self-improvement program. And in fact, it's really not. When we try to make it that, we fail. Christianity at the core of it, is a death-to-life thing. It is from darkness to light. It is a transformation that takes place in the soul where we go from dead to alive. Amen. You, you can talk to me. I won't be afraid. I won't get surprised here. So God, again, is making us into a place where, we can, where He can dwell. When you build a house, you don't build the house for the house. You don't just, you know, put structure and things together to go, I think the house would like this. No, you build the house for who is going to live in the house. The person building the house builds the house for how they want it to be. So if Jesus is building the house and the house is for him so that he would dwell in the house, then we should actually allow the house to be the way he wants it to be. So God, what do you want us to look like? What do you want us to be? This isn't our idea and we just decide to call it church. No, God, this is your idea. This is your church. This is your heart. What do you want it to look like? And so we've been asking ourselves that question. We've been asking the Lord that question. God, what are you looking for in a people that you can stay with and dwell with? And so over the last few years, we've talked about things and we feel like the Lord's shown us things like first love. He desires people to love him first and most above all else. To recognize their greatest mission, greatest ministry, greatest calling is to minister unto the Lord and to love him with all that they have. When we, we, before we began to remodel this place, right after we bought this place, I came in here one morning early to pray, and I just was like, Lord, why are we here? Why are you calling us to Longview? What is the purpose that you have us here for? What are you looking for? And I don't know why I asked these questions before the Lord. I should have been solid and firm in my heart, but I just had this moment of like, God, this is so big, and what are you asking of us? And he, it was very simple and very soft. He simply just said, I'm looking for a place that will love me. I'm looking for a place where I will be loved. So we desire, above all else, to be a place where the Lord knows if he comes, he will be loved on. Through our worship, through our lifestyle, through the preaching of the gospel, that he knows that he will be honored and loved. We, we also know that the Lord is looking for a place that is hungry for more of him, looking for a place of holiness that walks in his heart and his nature of righteousness. We know he's looking for a place of humility because it lines up with his heart, that he's meek and humble in heart. We know he's looking for a place of honor because that's the culture of heaven as honor. And so we want to be a people that honor the Lord, that honor one another in love, that honor our community. These are the things that we know the Lord has spoken to us and what he's looking for. And he's looking for a place where he can stay. I'm remind, when I think of this, I'm reminded of the story in Luke 24 where there's two disciples who are walking from Jerusalem to a, a town called Emmaus. And while they're on the journey there, Jesus appears to them. Jesus has just been raised from the dead. 
He's appeared to a few of his disciples, and now there's these two walking on this road, and Jesus comes, and he reveals himself to them. And they don't realize that it's Jesus. And they're discouraged, they're distraught. Uh, Jesus has died. They think their whole life has now uh, been changed and is over, and what they had given their lives to has come to an end. And, and so then he asks them what's going on, and they're like, haven't you heard what's happened? This, this Jesus, we thought he was going to be the Messiah, but he's died now. And then Jesus is walking with them and begins to reveal the reveal the Messiah himself to them through the scriptures and begins to talk to them about Moses and the prophets, how the Messiah was to come and had to die and all these different things. And it says in in Luke 24, verse 28, it says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going to go farther, but they urged him strongly. Notice, they urged him strongly. There's a hunger. There's a desperation here. Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And as they had a meal together, it says that as Jesus gave thanks and broke bread, their eyes were opened as if they had seen this happen repeatedly multiple times, and they realized it was Jesus. And then all of a sudden, he, was van- he vanished before their sight. And they said this in the scripture. They said, were not our hearts burning when we walked with him, and he opened the scriptures to us. You see, sometimes you might be in this journey with Jesus, and you might not understand what's going on around you or what's going on in your walk with the Lord. And it's imperative that you aren't moved by your understanding, but you allow hunger to stir in the inside of you. You allow passion and desperation to stir up on the inside of you. You say, Jesus, I must have you stay in my house. I must have you stay with me. And even though there's pain, even though there's discouragement maybe at times, frustration, that, that burning of the heart doesn't go out, doesn't stop. Jesus is drawn to that place of hunger, and he reveals himself there wonderfully. So what does it look like for Jesus to stay in a place? I want to talk about four different cities, four different locations, uh, and we wanna, I want to compare and contrast here. I want to look at three of them where Jesus was not welcomed, where Jesus was not able to stay. And I want to look at one where he chose to stay and what was the difference in these places. So in the first place I want to talk about where Jesus was not able to stay or was not welcomed is Nazareth. Nazareth. Nazareth right here, in a sense, represents familiarity. Familiarity. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 says this, when, then he, speaking of Jesus, then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. You see, Nazareth was his hometown. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up as a child and into adulthood for the majority of his life in the town of Nazareth. Verse 2, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. They were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, 
except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. In Luke chapter 4, it talks about the same scenario, the same story, where Jesus goes to Nazareth and he reads out of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61, that we know today, and talks about the Messiah, that he come, he was going to come, the anointed one, and, and heal the sick and, and bring deliverance and break those out of captivity. And there was a seat in the synagogue reserved for the Messiah, that only the Messiah would go and sit on. He read from that scroll, it says he closed the scroll, put it down, and went and sat down in that chair. And says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He basically just said, hey, everybody, you've been waiting for this guy, the Messiah. I'm him. I'm the guy. And they are like going, what is going on? This man has lost his mind. Because they're like, we have known him his whole life. We know his mom. We know his brothers and sisters. There's no way that this man, this carpenter, is the Messiah. And it says that they literally grabbed him and drug him out of the synagogue to take him and throw him off a cliff. This place of familiarity and pride caused Jesus then to be welcomed or recognized or honored in his hometown. See, familiarity really is rooted in pride. They, they were like, I know this guy. At least I thought I knew this guy. I grew up with this guy. He grew up with my son. His dad and him made a table for me in my home. They built a shelf in my home. They helped build my home. There's no way that this guy is the guy. And their familiarity, their, their lens of pride caused them to not realize that they, they caused them to stop seeing Jesus for who he really was. They thought they knew, but they really didn't know. There's a lot of people in the American church that think they know Jesus, but don't really know him. They've been in church maybe their whole life. Maybe it's, well, you're one of them. Maybe you've been in church since you're a young person. You've heard the scriptures. You can quote scripture. You, you know church and you know how church is supposed to go. And there is something that has become familiar to you in this. And therefore, it can easily become mundane. It can become casual it can become comfortable it can be get you to a, into a place where you are lulled to sleep and you can easily go yeah i know god i know scripture i i know right and wrong but yet there is no life on the inside of you yet on the inside of you you have no satisfaction for your soul and you're conflicted because you look to the world for things still whether it's your career or your income or your possessions or other substances or hobbies or different things and yet you know that certain things are wrong but yet you aren't actually fulfilled on the inside because you become familiar with Jesus. You see, often God will send you what you want and what you need in a package that you don't expect. Or a package that you don't think you would want. Will you humble yourself to receive it? I don't know about you, if, if you're a parent in the room, I have learned probably more from the Lord, and I have been corrected and challenged more from my life from being a a dad and being with my kids and interacting with them than anything else. While I'm playing with them, while I'm talking to them, while I'm hanging out with them, while I'm correcting them, the Lord is speaking to me. 
would I do it that way? How, you know, like all these different things. Like, do you think I would correct them that way? Do I correct you that way? Do, you know, all these wonderful disciplined moments that I receive from the Lord in the midst of trying to be a dad. Anybody else can relate to this? And it's like if we had pride and we're like, I'm not going to listen to what my kids are doing. I'm not going to listen through the lens of my kids. Or I don't know about you, but maybe your kids say things to you and they like speak truth and they don't realize that they're speaking truth. And you're like, you're so right. I'm wrong. Thank you for that. You know, and but if you're not humble, you won't realize what God is doing through your children sometimes. And you're like, nope, I'm the parent. You will do what I say because I said it. Thus saith the Lord. You see, this is a quote by John Pavere. It says, you will never find God in an atmosphere where he isn't given the utmost respect. You will never find God in an atmosphere where he isn't given the utmost respect. He is looking for a place to be honored. It says that they were offended at him or they took offense at Jesus. You see, the spirit of offense works overtime. It's one of the devil's biggest tactics to stop the growth of a church and stop the growth of a person. Is people getting offended, getting offended at one another, getting offended at God, getting offended at really dumb stuff like I don't like the style of music. I don't like the lights. I don't like the carpet squares. I don't like the colors. I don't like the paint job. I don't like, I don't like the pastor and how he spoke to me. I don't like that person over there. They offended me. And the spirit of offense works overtime to bring division and to separate people and separate people from God. People are offended at God because he didn't do what they thought he should when, he, when they thought he should do it. He's God. Last time I checked, he didn't ask for your opinion. He made you. He probably knows best. And there's a good chance that you're blaming God for things that aren't God's fault. So here is what Paul says in Acts 24. And I, I want this for my life and I want this for all of us here. Because if we take this as our own, then there is no room for offense in our lives. Acts 24, 15, Paul says this, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the, of the just and the unjust. Verse 16, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and toward men. I strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. That there must be a a decision, an intentionality inside of you that says, yes, though someone can wrong me, I might feel pain, my feelings can be hurt. I will not allow it to build an offense in my life because one day I realize I am going to stand before God and have to give an account for everything and every word and every part of my life. And God has forgiven me and I want him to forgive me of everything. So I have no right to hold unforgiveness towards someone else. I understand that people in church aren't always the kindest and aren't always the most loving and aren't always the smartest. And they can legitimately hurt people. And maybe you're one that has been hurt in church. I would encourage you 
to not allow that to stop you, not allow that to be something that lingers in your life that you carry with you, that you take it and put it at the feet of Jesus and at the cross and say, Jesus, I forgive them. Jesus, I give you this hurt. I do not want to carry any offense, any bitterness in my heart towards these ones, and I choose to follow you, Lord, and receive the forgiveness that you've given me, and I forgive them with that same forgiveness. Familiarity breeds contempt, and contempt is a dishonor and disvaluing of the Lord. And the people of Nazareth did it there to Jesus. The next city I want to talk about is the town of the Gadarenes. Okay, it's called multiple different names in Scripture, but Gadarenes is the one I can pronounce. Praise God. Only one person laughed. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. All right. In Luke chapter 8, it talks about Jesus getting on a boat with his disciples and going across the Sea of Galilee. And he comes to the shore of the Gadarenes, and there's this man who's naked, running around, who's full of demons. And it says, when the man saw Jesus, he ran and fell at his feet. Powerful moment. This is in Luke chapter 8. I don't have time to read this part of the story, but you can see it in your Bible. He comes and falls at his feet. This shows me. That no demon and the amount of demons of hell can stop another person from choosing to come to Jesus if that person wants to come to Jesus. And Jesus is not intimidated. He's not worried. He's not fearful. Because no amount of demons is too many for Jesus. And this man says his name was Legion for a legion of demons was inside of him. And so it says that Jesus cast the demons out of this man into a herd of pigs. The herd of pigs nearby goes down the hillside into the sea, and they all drown. In verse 34 of chapter 8, it says this, When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gadarenes asked Jesus to leave them. Think about it. They asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The Gadarenes represents Fear. So Nazareth, familiarity, Gadarenes, fear. Think about this for just a moment. I wish I had a little bit more time to go into this story. But Jesus literally took care of the town problem. He took care of the town issue. Like, I'm sure that this man, possessed by this many demons, running around naked in the graves and running maybe into town at times, they tried to chain him up and they could not keep him contained by chains. I'm sure it was not a good feature of the town. Yeah, come in and look at the great real estate and the beautiful areas that we have for you to offer. Oh, don't man that crazy naked man over there. He's just possessed by the devil. And people are like, I ain't coming here. He literally took care of the problem that they all knew was the problem in the town. He's sitting at Jesus' feet in his right mind with clothes on. The problem that they had all along was they couldn't keep clothes on the man. And here he is 
He's clothed. And they were freaked out. It broke their box. It shattered their comfort zone. It shattered their idea of life and what they were really wanting. Because you see, there was a herd of pigs nearby. Now, if they were a righteous Jewish community, there would have been no place for a herd of pigs nearby. Okay? If they were living in righteousness according to the laws and ways of God, there would have been no room for a herd of pigs nearby in their town. Jesus not only takes care of the town problem, he removes their sin problem. And they didn't like it. They wanted to stay in their sin. They wanted to stay in their comfortable lifestyle. They wanted to stay in control of their life the way that they wanted it to be. You see, God isn't wanting us to be afraid of him. He's wanting us to live in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is an awareness of God where the heart posture is, I am afraid of being away from God. I want to be with him all the time. I don't want anything in my life that would cause me to lose awareness of the presence of God. Fear of, the the wrong kind of fear of God, being afraid of God, is I have something to hide and I don't want God to ask me to give that to him. I want to call myself a good Christian person and live life my own way. And therefore, we actually tell Jesus he cannot stay. Look at this in in contrast here. In Luke 8.40, Jesus leaves because they wanted their comfort zone. They wanted their sin. And he leaves to go back to where he came from. And it says this in Luke 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Notice the difference. Jesus, you need to go. You freaked me out, and I want to live my life my own way. Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. Come. There's sick people all around here. Would you please pray for them? And it says that there was two amazing miracles that took place of note as Jesus came into this region. It says there was a crowd of people. Again, the expectation, the anticipation, the excitement in the, in the region in that place was so high that it says that Jesus was pressed with people pressing up against him to try to touch him. One of them was a woman who had an incurable condition that for 12 years, no doctor could help her. She had tried everything. She'd spent all that she had to get the help that she needed. And there was nothing left for her to try, nothing left for her to do. And so she says, I just know that if I can even just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. So she pressed through the crowd, breaking Jewish protocol as an unclean person and doesn't care and presses through and touches the hem of his garment and instantly she's healed. Jesus manifested his power and his presence in such a real intangible way that power was oozing out of him that he felt it so so nearly, so closely that he said, someone touched me. And everyone's like, there's a hundred something people touching you right now. What are you talking about? No, it was different. This was different. Jesus could only do a few miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief. Familiarity is often attached to unbelief. He could only heal and set free one person in the Gadarenes. And yet this woman 
The power of God was so thick and tangible because perhaps the atmosphere of the region, the town, the group of people, and how they welcomed him. Then a man, a synagogue leader, a Jewish religious leader, dignified, probably wealthy, falls at Jesus' feet and asks Jesus to come to his house because his daughter is very sick and about to die. And Jesus goes into that house after she's died and raises her from the dead. All in the same town. What can take place when people welcome Jesus with expectation, seeing him for who he really is? The next place I want to talk about is Jerusalem, another place where Jesus was not able to stay. In Luke 19, Jesus said this. Now as he, or it says this, now as he drew near, speaking of Jesus, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. What is Jesus saying here? They did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah coming in that moment. They held on to their traditions, their, re their religious rituals and practices, and loved those more than they loved Jesus. Jerusalem represents the religious spirit. And that religious spirit holds on to what I know, what I came from, and what I'm comfortable with more than what Jesus might want to do that breaks open my box of what I'm used to and comfortable with. And, and I believe that Jesus purposefully goes after our boxes, purposefully offends our minds to see if we really want him. Jesus is actually called the rock of offense. Like, he, he almost is in very intentional to cause such a disturbance in our hearts and minds about things where he goes, it's me. I know you weren't expecting me to come this way, but it's me. Would you like me? But the religious spirit gets offended and says, this is not what I like. This is not my comfort level. This is not what I'm used to. I look at every historical move of God throughout time and scripture and I go, what, they, what happened there was not like what happened before. What happened there was, was radical, was crazy, was out of the box. And if the people did not receive it, it did not last. It did not continue. We have an opportunity to receive Jesus in whatever way he would like to come. So if Jesus wasn't welcomed in his hometown, and he wasn't welcomed in the religious center of the day in Jerusalem, where he probably should have been honored and welcomed the most, a place that should have all been about him, those two places, I mean, his hometown and the religious center, those should have been the places that recognized him and should have been all about him, but they weren't. Where did he choose to stay? Where did he choose to go? Well, he went to a little town called Bethany. And Bethany was a small little village just two miles outside of Jerusalem. He could have stayed in Jerusalem, but he chose not to. He chose to take a journey two miles each way 
to a little town called Bethany. Why? Why was that? What about Bethany caused Jesus to want to be there? Well, maybe there was a family, and maybe there was a woman named Mary that loved him in a way like no one else did. And that caused Jesus to want to stay there. Bethany, the name of Bethany, actually means place of poverty. Or in, in a sense, it doesn't represent financial poverty. It means internal poverty. It is a heart posture. It, it, it comes in line with this scripture that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 3, or Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is a place of humility, a place of desperation, a place of hunger, of poor in spirit that actually draws Jesus to that place. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The entire kingdom is, the, is theirs for those who are poor in spirit. Everything in it, all that is available is theirs for those who are poor in spirit. And Bethany represented this place of being poor in spirit. Jesus chose to sleep there. He chose to recline there. He chose to stay there because he was ministered to there. Bethany developed a reputation in the heart of Jesus and in heaven as a place where he would be loved. And my prayer for us is that we, God would make us into a Bethany, a place where he is loved. I want to just close with this passage of Scripture, Mark 14 is the story of right before Jesus is coming to the cross and he's with his disciples and they're about to have uh, before the Last Supper. And it says this in Mark 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. This, is, this woman is Mary, and you can see this in John chapter 12 as a parallel story. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to portray Jesus to them. This woman took her most valued and treasured possession. It was some people believe culturally it would have been either something she received through inheritance from a family member that had been passed down and it was a family uh, gift that was very valuable obviously or it was given to her to be given to a man for her dowry for her marriage either way 
it was worth a year's wages. It was the most prized and valuable possession of her life. And in this moment, she recognized that Jesus was worthy of everything, worthy of all that she had and more. And she, in the moment of Jesus being gathered with a bunch of guys that were probably enjoying his company, but not maybe seeing him the way he really was or honoring him for who he really was, she said, what does Jesus need right now? What is he looking for? What can I do for Jesus? How can I bless him? How can I minister to him? And it was like she saw in his face something that he knew was coming, which was the cross. He knew his end was coming near. And this terrible thing he was going to go through was coming. And it was like she saw it in the spirit. And she said, I know what I must do. He's worthy of it. And she took this alabaster jar. And she didn't pour it over him. She broke it. She completely eliminated its reuse and said, you can have it all Jesus and poured it out over him and talks about how in other passages that she like put her hair down and and wept at his feet and wiped his feet with her hair and all of these amazing things and the disciples got upset the disciples began to rebuke her began to criticize her began to be negative uh, negative about her because they the religious spirit in them was like what is going on And they actually said, this is a waste. This is a waste of this use. This is so expensive. It could have been used for so many other things. And Jesus rebukes them. He defends her and says, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. You see, you can never waste yourself on Jesus. You can never waste anything on Jesus. When you pour out your life, when you give Jesus your life, when you give your life and service to Him and, and for Him, to minister unto Him, to love Him, though the world may think it's a waste of your time, though the world may think it's a waste of your life and that you spend hours doing things that don't make any sense. You spend hours in the Bible. You spend hours in prayer. You spend hours in worship. You spend hours preaching the gospel. You spend hours... In, in church and in, in service and loving other people and people think it's a waste of your time to Jesus if it's unto him it's a beautiful thing to him it ministers to his heart and he says she has done this to me to prepare me for my burial think about it for a moment when Jesus is hanging on that cross beaten, bloody being mocked, spit on has been flogged What smell did Jesus probably still smell? The smell of that alabaster perfume jar. Jesus is linked closely with that woman Mary in that moment. And in his agony and torment on the cross, he remembers, oh, there's someone that loves me. See, that was why Jesus stayed in Bethany. And we have an opportunity in Longview. We have an opportunity in your own home. You have an opportunity in your life to be a divine dwelling place. We have an opportunity to be a divine dwelling place that loves Jesus with all that we have where Jesus wants to be. 
where he knows if I show up at the promised church in Longview, they will love me because they see who I really am. They're not familiar with me. They're not afraid of me. They're not going to be more concerned with their traditions and their boxes. They're going to want me. And they will give everything that they have for me. And what does Jesus do? Jesus forever links the gospel with this woman crazy thought. He forever says the gospel, whenever it is preached, will be linked to to this woman. Why? Because he's like, look, if you're going to follow me and you're going to receive me as Lord and Savior and you're going to give me my, give me your life and you're going to receive forgiveness for your sins, then I want your life to look like this woman right here. I want your life to be a life poured out unto me, to love me for who I am, to give yourself for me, to give everything that you have for me. This is what real following Jesus looks like. Not Jesus fit into my box. Jesus just bless my life so I can live a good, comfortable American life and retire when I'm 65 and be able to live life however I want to. No. Says Jesus, I give you everything. I give you every part of me. Have your way in my life. In one moment, Mary demonstrated every one of these attributes that we've talked about. First love, hunger, humility, holiness, honor. She did them all in one moment. Poured out everything for the Lord because she recognized he's the only one worthy. May we be a place where Jesus wants to stay. May may we be a place that is known in heaven and maybe even on earth as a place where Jesus is and where Jesus is welcomed, where Jesus is free to be himself, where Jesus knows I'm honored and I'm loved there. This is what he's inviting us into. It's an invitation. If we don't respond, we might not get another opportunity. He's so merciful. He's so gracious. But this is what he's inviting us into. Will you be a place where I can be me? So many times we go to a church looking for a place that will accept us and welcome us and allow us to be ourselves. But so often we go to churches and we don't let Jesus, the one who church is supposed to be about, built on and built by, allow him to be himself. And you will find yourself and receive who you really are when you allow Jesus to be who he really is in your life.